This is Waking from the American Dream. I am Kelly Carlin. Some foolish things may get tossed around Till right side up to upside down But that's okay I think that it's fair to sail all in a great day Loving whomever we choose Proves that nobody has to be sad I would like it if it be that way Nobody has to be sad I would like it if it be that way Like it if it be that way Like it if it be that way Stars are gone and your dream is complete Wake up, this is no time to sleep Cause it's warm outside I think that's fair to say It's gonna be a great day If you'll spend it with me Please, won't you come spend it with me I would like it if it be that way Won't you come spend it with me I'm sorry, that would be like it if it be that way by Travis and Shook. And uh, as you know, they are uh, regulars uh, that I play here on this uh, show. I I don't know. I guess I'm in a mood with them or something. It's very strange. Uh, I've been playing them ever since the beginning of my show. And uh, I don't know why they never got famous. They, uh, They used to open for my dad in the 70s. And they're just beautiful harmonies and just beautiful little sweet music tunes. And they just love music. And Chandler Travis uh, is a wild, crazy man. So uh, <laughs> I just really, I don't know, something about their music. 
So uh, you can always find uh, their stuff or Travis's uh, Chandler stuff on Travis Chan- ChandlerTravis.com. My brain is not working today. Uh, and I'll tell you why in a minute. But anyway, uh, my brain is not working. So you can find ChandlerTravis.com. Music from Travis Shook and the Club Wow, the Chandler Travis Philharmonic. He's got like 10 different names and everything. So I hope you guys can hear me because it doesn't... Oh, I know what's going on here. Uh, Hold on a second. Okay, that's better for me. Sorry about that. I had to deal deal with my headphones here. I like to hear things clearly, and I wasn't hearing myself well. All right. So uh, before I get to my guest, though, today, the reason I'm kind of spazzolid in my head is... uh, Now, tell me, please explain this neurosis to me. So I've been working on writing a book or the semblance of a book for about five years now, a memoir, family stories, my story, the story, whatever the fuck it is. And, um, and I've been shaping it with a, with a lit agent and all that kind of stuff. And now it looks like I'm going to be able to fly probably in three or four weeks to New York to pitch it to a publisher who's very interested in hearing about it and seeing about it. Well, I got that email this morning, like, Hey, what's the date? When do you want to come in? And immediately I could not breathe. (laughs) It's like my chest has got a vice around it and I have a semi-panic attack going. And this is everything I want. So you know how it is. But I think it's the thing. It's like, what if they don't don't like it, you know, and all that kind of stuff. On top of that, this week I started working on a live show that I'm working on, which I've talked about here a little bit. Uh, It's something I'm going to be doing at the Just for Laughs Montreal Comedy Festival it's called A Carlin Home Companion, and it is what it is. I tell family stories, and I'm going to play some clips of my dad and uh, also uh, home movies and, and things like that. Uh, you know, and it, it's kind of the, 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 um, the abridged version of the book, I suppose, in some ways. So I've been doing a lot of work on this stuff this week, and uh, I don't know. Maybe it's the revisiting my childhood. <laughs> Maybe that's what the panic's all about. Uh, so anyway, I, I'm just in a little, of a little bit of a lather. But I'm really excited today about my guest because my guest is someone who uh, I, I know can take care of himself in this department because he's a, he's a man who also uh, loves to tell stories and, and hang out and talk about the world. And like every single amazing level, I was listening to his podcasts uh, this week. Uh, my uh, guest today is uh, Stephen Tobolowski, and uh, I have decided that Stephen has been in every single movie ever made. I, I wasn't in Sister Act 2. <laughs> and someone mentioned Die Hard. You were not in Die Hard. No, no, See, I wasn't. So, okay. My they theory- wanted me for the body that got thrown out from the 27th floor window, but I said, no, I don't do stunts. See, so, 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 you've, so if you haven't been in every single movie ever made, you've been at least possibly up for or mentioned... Uh, by the casting director if for every single movie ever made. I think I think I I would like to think that's true, but it's completely <laughs> not. I've, I've screamed with unemployment. I tell you, the worst uh, uh, long stretches of desert of unemployment. But, but one of the worst experiences I was in one of those stretches of unemployment, and I got a call from another agent, not my agent, but a an agent from a rival agency. Mm-hmm. And they said, Stephen, aren't you going in on this blah, 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 which was some sort of sitcom, and they had a role for the father. And I said, no, haven't heard about it. I said, well, let me, the, the agent said, let me read you what it says in the casting breakdown. The casting breakdown said, looking for a Stephen Tobolowsky type. No! 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 And I had no audition. So I called up my agent and said, hey, listen. You know, I know you're, you're doing a hot job for me here. But here is, a, here is something in the casting breakdown where it says we're looking for a Stephen Topolowski type. I get no call. My agent, without batting an eye, said, you're not right for it. <laughs> and so any of you who have dreams of coming to Hollywood, that is the kind of pure torturous hell that you can expect when you get here. Oh, at least. At least that. <laughs> uh, the first, the, I remember one of the first auditions, you remind me. One of the first auditions I had when I came to Los Angeles, because I was just a babe in the woods, and I came out from Dallas, Texas, and of course we were, we were like very hungry fish looking for any worm that came <laughs> in. <laughs> well, one of those worms was uh, the director Larry Buchanan. Mm-hmm. Do you know who Larry Buchanan is? I don't is? know. Okay. Well, let's 
check on your IMDb, and you will find out that Larry Buchanan directed the film Mars Needs Women. <laughs> Not only that, but when Larry Buchanan died, which was a few years ago, he was working on a sequel called Mars Still Needs Women. <laughs> now, the, the thing about Larry Buchanan was he shot... Uh, a lot around Dallas, Texas. He mm. shot in Dallas and Dallas, Texas, which is where I'm from. And so we thought we could play the Dallas, Texas <laughs> homeboy kind of card, like I am from your hometown, Larry. Can you do it? Hello. So anyway, I had an agent. She was, I guess, an agent. She was actually selling <laughs> rain gear on commission at the May Company, but she worked. She was an agent in Dallas, Texas, and she moved out to the big big town Mm -hmm. out here to Hollywood be Mm -hmm. an agent in Hollywood and she got me a meeting with Larry Buchanan (laughs) when he came out here and I I wasn't too sure what to do so I what what do you do I had my my contemporary monologue yes I had my Shakespeare yeah (laughs) just in case Larry just in case Larry (laughs) Larry wanted Mars the still needeth women So I'm sitting in the waiting room. This whole waiting room smelled like the inside of a Marlboro. I mean, Larry was a smoker for sure. And I'm sitting in there on the couch, and I waited 45 minutes. And finally, the great man came in from out of doors. And he came in, and he goes, oh, you're, you're here to see me? And I go, yes, Larry, we, we have an appointment. Come on back to the back. Come on back to the back. So I walked down the hallway and follow him. And he said, you know... I've done just about everything in this business. I have written scripts. I have directed scripts. I have hauled the damn cables. I set up lighting equipment. But the one thing I do not know is air conditioning. Do you know how to fix an air conditioner? (laughs) I was sitting on the couch and go, "Uh, no, sir. Yes, thank you. Bye-bye. Oh! That was it. That was my first audition was that Larry was hoping that I had some sort of Homeboy knowledge <laughs> Being of fixing the air conditioner from the hot state no. of Texas. Yeah, but I don't think I don't think he ever actually made a film at that uh, <laughs> while on that trip out. out. He was just looking for the women. I don't know. Wow. I don't know why Larry's there. Now, how did you from Texas from Dallas? How did how did you get into acting in Dallas? It was all I ever wanted to do. Mm. I, I wanted to get into acting. Now, now see, this is very interesting. It, it goes into your writing question, which I do have comment on. Mm-hmm. I do have comment on your panic. Oh, uh, oh, good. We'll get there in a second. We'll get there in a second, yeah. When I was, a, see, a lot of times, most of the time, should I not say all the time? No, no, we, you can't say all. Okay. Well, you can. Most but. of the time, <laughs> we make our decisions based on no information at all. <laughs> Or the information we have is patently incorrect. When I was a child, I wanted to be an actor because I thought it would allow close proximity to monsters. I was like five or six years of age, and I thought actors got to hang out with Frankenstein, Wolfman, Dracula. Godzilla was my particular favorite. Well, and that's very good five-year-old logic. Yeah. Yeah. Makes total sense to me. I completely thought they were all real, and I thought I could come out and be an actor and have adventure. (laughs) I guess that was it. Mm. I thought being an actor meant you got to fight in wars and fly rocket ships and go across on big ships across the ocean. Uh, Again, wrong information. (laughs) Yes, definitely. Being an actor means you sit in a trailer all day and do nothing, Mm -hmm. and if there is any flying in outer space, it's done against a green screen, and you're (laughs) stuntman, you're begging, he's going to do it. You you want to stay after a while. You know, there's the first stage of when you first get your jobs where you think like, oh, don't, no, I'll do it. I'll do, I'll do the stuff. I'll do it. Just, I don't want to sit in this trailer. I want, then you get to that middle stage where you go, like, you know, the trailer's okay. <laughs> <laughs> and then you go, don't you have somebody who can yeah, do really. my hands? You, know, you have to do an insert on the computer. Doing, you know, you have some, some guy up there, a grip, he could do it. You know, you don't need me to do that. I, you know, you, and, you just, and you just sell it all. Yeah, sell it all. Um, <laughs> so I, that's why, so, you know, when I was a kid, I did all the plays in the school parks, right, right. the school plays, uh, high school plays. I was in the one act play competition. Oh, did you ever do that? No, I did only a couple of things in high school. Uh, well, I'm not even in high school, actually. I did an Oliver. I was in the chorus in Oliver, 
Uh, more? A, yes, more food, glorious food. Oh, I loved it so much. Uh, it, I lived in the Palisades, and there's a little place called St. Matthew's up there. Oh, I know it well. And summer camp at St. Matthew's, they used to have this theater program. So my neighbor, Amanda, who was much more bold than me in every way, and she was two years older than me and got breasts way earlier than me and did everything way earlier than me, she was going to go down to audition for this. And I had always, I mean, I grew up knowing that I was going to be Shirley Temple. I mean, that was my thing. I watched TV thinking, you know, and, and movies and thinking, I just want to sing and dance all day. So uh, she said she's going to go down to audition. So I went down and auditioned too. Now she, she got to be part of Fagin's gang. So it was a little bit of an upgrade than just chorus for me. But, so, but I was in, uh, I got to sing Food, Glorious Food, Oliver, and uh, Consider Yourself, which, you know, those are Who the three best Who will buy this ones. wonderful morning? Uh, I, th- I think I was on stage for that, <laughs> uh, doing some sort of back and forth swinging thing. But uh, but that was, you know, and then unfortunately for me in high school, I was uh, a total stoner and never went the drama school <laughs> route. <laughs> kind of, I, I reached a crossroads and, and literally went to Crossroads High School and at Crossroads, was at a crossroads, and decided to smoke my way through high school instead of uh, go, the, go the drama department route. So, unfor- you know, it, it, it did. It, it was a choice that I had. And- so you did that way earlier than me. I grew up in, in a, not only a white flight area of, outside of Dallas, called Oak Cliff. Mm -hmm. So white flight, for those of you out there who don't know what that means, that means that no no black people lived there at all. It was an area that uh, in when they started segregation in the South and people didn't want to be segregated, they moved to their own communities. It was a white flight area, and it was dry. Hmm. And if you don't know what that means, <laughs> it means you have to drive 20 miles for a beer. Oh. It, it was so, you know, I grew up in very very rarefied air. Wow. I had I had and of course, when you grow up in that kind of bubble, you have no idea you're in a bubble. Yes, of course. Because you can't see the outside yeah, of the bubble you are. It's the air you breathe, yeah. So, yeah. I think I had my first beer, my first sip of beer when I was 19. Wow. And, and, and it's a Texas boy you're talking about. I Texas mean, boy. Fun. And in college, everybody was trying to get me to smoke marahuchi, and I was terrified, <laughs> and I would absolutely not do it. Absolutely not do it. I did buy a marijuana pipe, which I kept empty. <laughs> to be cool? Not to be cool. <laughs> I, I didn't know what it was. <laughs> I thought it was a gear shift to an erector car, and <laughs> it was a marijuana pipe. So, <laughs> But I think my girlfriend thought I was cool at the time, but... I think I had my oh oh okay okay I remember my first uh, my first what what do you call it Halu- not halluc what do you call that when you smoke something it's not a hallucinogen no that's but like LSD it, it's a high though it's your first you know your toking 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 okay <laughs> it was not grass it was something that was given to me called hash oh okay yeah so I was in graduate school I was mm. twenty five years old. And they had this thing that came on TV. If you're a student of ancient history, uh, they had a show on called Monty Python. <laughs> and, yes, they did. And it was on PBS, and we had no idea what it was. But the ritual was that you uh, sit down and you smoke hashish. Then you watch Monty Python's Flying Circus, whatever that was. And then you spend the rest of the night eating pizza and cookies. <laughs> and and, and and that was me, except I was just probably 10 years behind you, basically, because I was in, you know, junior high, high school doing that, basically. Right. You know, we were just sitting in two different states, kind of doing the same thing at, at two different ages. I mean, Monty Python was, I mean, that that and, and sat, the early Saturday Night Live were the, the two things you did, and smoked pot and ate Haagen-Dazs and pizza. Yeah, the, fir- the first time I smoked the hash, nothing happened. I thought, well, this is nothing to be scared hmm. of. The second time I smoked the hash, the next week, absolutely nothing happened. And I thought, man, all of this hype. Third time I smoked the hash, when they roused me from unconsciousness, I had a dream that I had fallen down a mouth of a large cat and was in a stomach filled with chips and beer. And I was, I was paralyzed for hours. It was it was an unbelievably horrid, terrifying experience. I thought, well, I can't do that again. I'm I'm not safe doing that. So my drug experiences <laughs> happened much later. They happened like in my thirties. Oh I wow! Was, so I was a grown up uh, when when I did it. It wasn't it wasn't a form of rebellion for me. It was a form of setting a new low for the establishment. 
it's interesting. I, I found the funniest fact about you. Uh-oh. I was on Wikipedia. You know, oh, when you dear. have guests come on, you have to like, you go IMDB, you go Wikipedia. And so it's got, you know, the filmography, which literally goes on for pages, people. And, and then it's the personal life. And there's, there's, there's one sentence that says, <clears throat> it's two sentences, sorry. Stephen Tabalowski is Jewish. <laughs> Purim is one of his favorite Jewish holidays. That's it. That's all what? it says about your personal now look, life. <laughs> okay, first of all, for, for you people out there, you might... That's what it this says. This is crazy. I know. You need to go this check is, your Wikipedia page. Listen, I, ch- <laughs> I had some guy tweet me the other day and said he was fucking with my Wikipedia page. Now, this is some guy I don't know. Oh, well... So I went looked on the Wikipedia page, and he had the line... Stephen Tobolowsky is Jewish. That was the only line they had there. He had put that in. But this whole thing that Purim is one of his favorite Jewish holidays. And I'm thinking, do you have a crush on Esther? Yeah, I is mean- that true? I, Purim. Oh, man. No. You know, I, I had one thing on Wikipedia, which, you know, for years, uh, you know, I was in an interview situation and in the Wikipedia page, it said Stephen Tobolowsky played with Stevie Ray Vaughan and Jimmy Vaughan in high school, played lead guitar and sang in the first group Stevie Ray Vaughan was ever in. And they said, you know, dude, check out your Wikipedia page. So I checked out my Wikipedia page, and I go, it's my God. <laughs> first of all, the logic that I would play lead guitar in a band that featured Stevie Ray Vaughan and Jimmy Vaughan. I know. And yet, somehow, for some reason, I don't play guitar uh, nowadays. Yeah, that's, yeah. But I did play with Stevie Ray Vaughan uh, in the first, uh, the first recording Stevie Ray Vaughan ever did. That, now, that is true. Uh-huh. In the first, the first uh, rec- uh, Stevie was 14, wow. and I was 19, <laughs> and I had no talent at all. Now, let me be clear about this. Uh, I was in this group. It was a folk rock group. In fact, it was like your guys. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Except we were far worse. I mean, we, your guys are good. Yeah. They're good. We weren't good. And, and we sang songs like Spirit's Nature Way. And we, we sang like <laughs> Jesus Met the Woman at the Well. Anyway, we also wrote our own songs. And uh, we, we played hot gigs like at the Mormon Church and things like that. But... <laughs> We were picked, this is true, we were picked among five bands in Dallas to be on a, I'm saying garage band uh, album, but this was before there were garage yeah, bands. Yeah. In fact, we didn't practice in garages because we didn't have the equipment to practice in garage. Cars were in garages. Right. We practiced in bedrooms and living rooms. Is where we, we were a living room band. And so uh, the head of our, one of the heads of our group, I was not the head. I was the tail. If that, <laughs> if that's a technical musical term. Okay, it is now. It is now. Uh, Bobby Foreman, who actually went on, I th- believe, to be in the new Christy Minstrels. He was actually very talented. Oh, wow. He said, well, we got, I got this kid to play lead guitar with us, uh, Stevie Vaughan. And I was like, oh, what, what, what kid? He goes, well, he's 14. I go, oh, come on, Bobby. Come on. You know, we're a serious group. And he says... He's really good. And I go, okay, yeah, okay, 14-year-old, really good. <laughs> so we went to Tempo 2 Studios in Dallas, and we did two of our original songs. One, I Heard a Voice Last Night, and two, Red, White, and Blue. <laughs> and Stevie Ray was there sitting on a metal folding chair, and he had a Gibson with the double humbuck pickups. Mm. And he was sitting there saying, so guys, uh, <laughs> uh, do you want me to do it like Eric Clapton or like Jimi Hendrix? And I said to Bobby, who's Jimi Hendrix? <laughs> it was that white flight area. See, the bubble was coming up again. I had no idea who Jimi Hendrix was. And Bobby said, shut up. <laughs> and Bobby said to Stevie, just whatever you want, Stevie. And so he says, well, how do the songs go? And uh, so we started playing one of our songs, Red, White, and Blue. And he stopped us after about 10 seconds and said, oh, I got it. So do you, wow. want, do you want me to play a good, a good lead or a bad lead? Because that's a pretty bad song. It may be funny if we do a bad lead. And Bobby said, why don't you do both? So on the song, we have a hokey lead that uh, Stevie does uh-huh. and a hot lead that Stevie does. And in fact, these two songs are the first wow. recordings of Stevie Ray Vaughan ever. Wow. Yeah, yeah. So that was true. And that, that was on my Wikipedia page. But somebody took that <laughs> off and put the Jewish thing with the Purim. <laughs> well, as long as it's true. 
Yeah, that internet. It, <clears throat> you just never know. I just love that, that you know nothing about this. <laughs> no, this was a first. I love Purim. Do you know what Purim is? I, I do, actually. Do? I, I know a little bit about it. I, uh, you know, I, I, I know it has to do with Esther, yeah. and it has to do with, um, I believe, Mordecai oh, is, yeah. is another character. And it's, it's one of the better stories. I mean... It's a great story. Yeah, yeah. Uh, here is a Purim fact for all you people out there who are hungry for more <laughs> knowledge about Purim, is that in the Jewish Bible, the story is called the Book of Esther. Yes. But in other literature, the very same story is called the Book of Mordecai. Hmm. And it shows, you know, every story, as you know, is a storyteller. Mm-hmm. Every storyteller depends on the focus, on the prism, on the lens that you tell the story through. Yep. If you tell the story through the lens of Mordecai, it is a very heroic story. It's a grand story. Mordecai is a grand old man, and he stands up to some very bad people. His lives are in danger. But if you say the story is the book of Esther, mm. and you base it on this woman, at a time in which no women were the leads, leads in their own movies of stories, it becomes an entirely different and amazingly compelling story. I mean, it's, it's an awesome story because she really, you know... How many times in life do we take up arms Mm. to defend our home and hearth and family? Almost never. But let me tell you, the number of times in your life that you have to open your mouth or raise your hand to be counted in something that does change things, that does make a huge difference. Now, we are too chicken to usually do that. We are too chicken to open our mouth or raise our hand. And Esther did that and. She put her life on the line to save, not herself. She figured she was a goner. Mm -hmm. She put her life on the line to save an entire nation of people that were going to be murdered in midnight raids, very much like the Nazis did on Kristallnacht. They succeeded. Boy, well, there's some Purim. Maybe I should leave the Purim thing there. (laughs) Maybe you should. It adds some mystery to you. It adds some mystery. What part of that story really resonates with Stephen? I mean... What's, what's haunting him about Mordecai versus <laughs> Esther? <laughs> Stay tuned. Uh, so let's jump in a little bit to uh, and talk a little bit about your 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 amazing acting career. Uh, just for people who don't know, who haven't IMDb'd Stephen yet while we're talking here, uh, he's been in everything from. Uh, uh, well, of course, you're all going to know that he's the guy from Groundhog Day who haunts Bill Murray about life insurance. And he, Ned Ryerson is the, is the character. And I watched uh, the other day, somewhere on YouTube, they've taken all your scenes and put them together. And what's really cool about that when you watch that is you see the whole arc of Bill Murray's character and journey just through your scenes. It's really, really cool. Like it, you're, you're like the, the touchstone for his character. It's an amazing script. It's like uh, Danny Rubin. Uh, it's a brilliant, brilliant script. Mm-hmm. And, and I still, it's one of those scripts like the Book of Esther that I keep looking at and find new things in it all the time. My character, if, if you really look at that movie, not only is the day repeated several times, we all know that, but if you look at the structure of the movie, Within the beginning of the movie, the morning is repeated, mm-hmm. in which I am the touchstone of that, those se- sequences. Right. Then in the middle of the movie, lunch is repeated. Mm-hmm. And That's that right. is uh, Chris Elliott saying, we got to get ahead of the weather, and Bill Murray trying to tell Andy that I, I know the future, I need help. And then the end of the movie is nighttime and dinner, and it, it, it is trying to pick up the girl and the snow right, angel the slaps right. and then it ends up with bedtime and ends with dawn. Uh, and and so within the multiple days you have a structure of morning, noon and night. Yeah, yeah. It's it, it is it's layer upon layer upon layer, truly. And every time I see it, it's one of those films that A, it comes on, you cannot switch it off because you have to watch it it's all the great. way through. It's <laughs> great. It's great movie. The torturing of this man's soul is just it's it's so it's so great. So you, so you've been in you you were in that which was iconic obviously for you <clears throat> and uh, uh, God I looked at I had your filmography up the uh, earlier uh, you were in Spaceballs Spaceballs so you worked with Mel Brooks that is correct what was that like 
Well, that was, that was kind of an odd accident. I was in a stage play at the time at the old Los Angeles Theater Center. Did you ever work there? Uh, you know, no, I never, I never did a lot of acting, but I certainly – I was actually a subscriber there for a while. That was a great – that was a great theater. We opened the theater with uh, Three Sisters, directed by Stein Vinga of mm. the National Theater of Norway, and it was successful of, uh, and odd, <laughs> as you could imagine. <laughs> and so Stein came back to direct a play called Barabbas by Michelle de Gelderode, which was a play that was written for marionettes. Hmm. Uh, wish they had the marionettes for it. But wow. we, had, uh, we started rehearsal, and we didn't have a lead, huh. and we ended up with uh, Bill Pullman. Wow. Who who is awfully good. And we had a great, great, great cast. Uh, But for some reason, the the show was just amazing catastrophe after catastrophe. Tony Geary was in it. He played uh, Judas. Uh, uh, Amazing catastrophes. Well, as it turns out, during some of the catastrophes, Bill was saying... He just got cast in this movie, Spaceballs, uh-huh. and he hoped that we'd clean up the catastrophes before Mel came to see the play. <laughs> and then I had the Kelly freeze of going, ah! I can't breathe. I can't, I breathe. can't breathe. I can't breathe. This is all I ever wanted. This is all I ever Mel wanted. Brooks. I'm, I'm, I'm in a professional play, and Mel Brooks is going to see it. So anyway, uh, the story as I heard it was that they had Franklin Jella for that part mm-hmm. in Spaceballs. And Frank uh, did not want to do it or dropped out or something. Mm. And when Mel came to see Barabbas, to see Bill Pullman, his future star right. in Spaceballs, Mel called me up at home and asked me if I wanted to come and meet him for a part in Spaceballs. Well, I, after I wet myself, <laughs> I said, oh, oh, God, this is what I wanted. So I drove down to... Uh, I think it was a studio down in Culver City. Uh-huh. I think Mel had an office in Culver City, and we went down there, and we went over and over and over uh, the, spa- the the kind of uh, Inquisitor General, whatever part I played in that. Right. And several, several times. And after we left, I got the part, and I was thrilled. I remember I was being paid $1,000 a day. Wow. And I thought, oh, this is the big time. Now, I was only shooting one day. Didn't matter. Didn't matter. (laughs) So I showed up on Monday, and they didn't get to me. Hmm. And so I had to come back Tuesday, and they didn't get to me. (laughs) And I came back Wednesday, and they didn't get to me. And I asked, I said, each one of these days I come, do I get paid for those, or do I get paid for the days I work? He says, no, you get paid for every day I work. So that's when I got into stay in the trailer, Stephen. (laughs) Stay in the trailer. If they don't see me, they don't, don't need see me. me. They don't need me. Just take the book of Esther, go back in the trailer and read. So they didn't need me Thursday and they called me on Friday. So I made five thousand wow. dollars for that one day part. Mm. And I thought like swimming pools, movie stars. Because, <laughs> you know, doing theater, I really I don't want to misspeak, but this was like what the late eighties, mm-hmm. and the kind of the top price you got was around four eighty five hundred dollars a week as an equity actor. As an equity actor doing theater, so this was yeah. Do the math ten times. Like ten times. Yeah, uh, that. So I thought, whoa, this movie business is good. <laughs> <laughs> Me liking the movie business. You know, that was before I knew what I was doing. I had a an encounter with uh, Mel Brooks. Very very different. Uh, I was in high school, and uh, I was on Westwood Boulevard, and we were going to Junior's Delicatessen. Know it well. I, th- I think maybe we, we possibly might have been ditching class. I can't really remember. And uh, so, you know, and parking for Junior's is a bitch to park anywhere around there. The parking lot fills up very quickly, and if you can get a spot on the street, it's amazing. Well, we pull up, and we notice someone getting into a Honda in front of us, and so we pull up behind, and the person <laughs> gets out of the Honda Comes around to my my friend's driving. I'm in the passenger seat. Knocks on the window. My friend rolls down the window, and the and the person says, "I've got 30 minutes left in the meter," and goes back and gets in his car. And my friend slowly turns to me and looks at me and says, "That was Mel Brooks, wasn't it?" <laughs> oh. And I said, "That was Mel Brooks. Yes, it was." So that was my one and only encounter so far with Man, Mr. Brooks. Thirty minutes in the meter, you can't beat that Are unless you... it's forty-five minutes on the and meter. And right in front of juniors. Right in front of I juniors. mean, hello. Yeah, it was it was pretty much what, what we call the Doris Day parking spot. But maybe I should be calling it the Mel Brooks parking maybe, spot. Maybe now. the Mel Brooks yeah. spot. Yeah. Um, 
something I wanted to ask you about your acting. Oh, God, I read you wrote that just such a beautiful piece for the New York Times about being a character actor. Stephen's a really good writer, you guys. You need to go and look up his stuff and listen to his amazing podcast, The Tobolowski Files. Uh, just what a beautiful piece. And uh, I just want to uh, – I'm going to quote you here while Uh-oh. you're sitting here. Here we go. Uh, but I just love this. It says – The character actor's goal, after all, is not to earn the adulation of the public. It is to give lives to a hundred nameless spirits who make us laugh or cry, who are both familiar and new, who show us that their journey is our journey, and who, like everyone in the audience, never get to kiss Renee Zellweger. It's that's just it's so beautiful, and and so I want yeah. I have to say one thing: the the last. Reference to Renee Zellwinger yes. came from, of course, Larry Miller, mm-hmm. a great comedian, great actor. Love him. Who his famous definition of a character actor is anyone in a movie who doesn't kiss Renee Zellwinger. <laughs> exactly. So that was a reference to Larry's uh, line there. It was a full circle from the from the beginning of the, right. the piece. Yes. And and yeah, it's I get the question all the time about. You know, being a character actor, what's it like being a character actor? Wouldn't you like to have the big parts? Right. The really big parts? <clears throat> I just had a frog in my throat. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I guess just talking about being a character actor. Gives <laughs> He's me, verklempt. It gives me phlegm. Uh, <laughs> you know, the difficult thing about being a character actor is that when you, when you play the lead in a show... Almost everything you do is in a movie, mm. if you think about it. You yeah. know, you wake you're, you're up. In almost every scene, yeah. Yeah, you're in every scene. You wake up. Leading actors wake up in bed and they get dressed. And we, as the audience, have to watch them get dressed. Right. It's you all know, fascinating. Like, yeah. You know, usually the credits are running. They drink coffee. <laughs> you know, they eat donuts. Uh, then they go to the office and they meet Ned or Bob <laughs> right. or Ted or me or whoever that right. is, that character right. actor. And that character actor. He also had his coffee, his, his donuts. He also bathed mm-hmm. and, and put on his fresh <laughs> right, BBs. <right>. But <laughs> it wasn't on film. And the, the thing the character actor has to do is it's a real exercise in imagination in that you have to fill in all that stuff before yes. you come into the scene. And you have to do all that imaginary work. And that's the real trick, I think, of succeeding in character acting is you have to not be lazy mm-hmm. and you have to, and you have to go back and you think what did I do before the scene and where am I going afterwards and the writers ain't going to help you yeah 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 it, it, it's it's that is interesting yeah it's that much more work that much more background work that that all the all actors have to do but yeah you're you're you and 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 here's the thing I love about you in particular and and all great character actors is you know seeing you in ten different things, you really are inhabiting ten very very different worlds, and you know who you are in glee versus who you were on deadwood <laughs> you, you know yeah yes. you know and and how fun that is and and to be able to see you kind of uh pour yourself into the environment that holds the story and, 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 and also to be one of the major archetypal forces within the story to, to move the thing along, you know, not just the hero, as they say, the, the lead is the hero. Uh, I, I think it's, you know, my, my dad, it just reminded me when I was growing up, my dad had these really cool books. Uh, one was like, where are they now? And another one, I can't remember the other one was like something about people being dead or whatever. But it was all character actors from the 20s, 30s, and 40s movies, all the movies my dad grew up in. And he could open the book at any place, and there'd be pages of these pictures of character actors, and he could tell you what movies they were in, what, what, what parts they played. He, like, he lived through these people. Like for him, they were much more fascinating than the lead actor. Well, well let's go back to Dallas, Texas, when I thought I was going to be hanging out with the monsters right. and everything. When when I was a kid, I went to the movie theater every Saturday, and they had the kid matinees. Mm-hmm. So I would see a double or triple feature every Saturday. Uh, my mother would drop me off at the theater at 9.45 in the morning, mm-hmm. pick me up at 3. It was a different <laughs> world. Wow. No, no, safety, uh, <laughs> no, no uh, safety belts on that. But, <laughs> 
I don't know why I'm – it's the character acting thing. <laughs> yes. um, I know that's one of the no-nos. You're not supposed to clear your throat when there's a microphone near. It's okay. It's You're okay. human. Thank You're you. human. It's Thank all right. you. But when I watch those movies, I, and, and you tell me if, if I'm misstating something, as a kid – I really thought that the secondary and tertiary characters were just as important as the lead characters. Sure, yeah. You know, uh, Roy Rogers' funny sidekick meant more to me, you know. I mean, uh, Captain Gallant of the Foreign Legion and Fuzzy Knight. You know, I love Fuzzy Knight. Yeah. I love all those guys in the Abbott and Costello movies that were just the victims of <laughs> Costello or something. You know, they were always important to me, and, and I, they didn't... Uh, occupy any secondary status in my mind i Mm -hmm. think it's only as we get older right and we get slightly poisoned by the idea of fame Mm -hmm. that we think like oh you know i i really want i really want that top i I really want the big mansion and i really want them to write about me in the inquire and i want the big car and i want the scandals and i want all that stuff i was i was working on um the Insider. Uh-huh. Uh huh. And I had a scene with Al Pacino, and uh, Michael Mann was directing. And when we finished the scene, we had a great time. And Al was like, fantastic, as you can imagine. Mm-hmm. I, just to watch the number of variations he did on the scene wow. was awesome. And he's leaving it to Michael Mann, who's brilliant, to edit together what he wants of the various performances he gave. So we did what all actors do. At the end of the scene, we start doing this post-mortem mm-hmm. of, hey, you know, when you said this line here, I love that scene. When you said this, man, that was right on. And, you know, and I go, Al, and, you know, when you, and while I'm talking to him and while we're talking about the scene, Al puts on this big floppy hat. He puts on this torn overcoat. He takes this ratty scarf, puts it around, puts these little goggle glasses on, starts attaching a beard, and I go, Al, <laughs> what are you doing? What are you doing? Go, Stephen, don't you get it? I can't go anywhere. Uh, I can't go anywhere. Mm. People will pick a fight with me on the street just to try to sue me, to get me in court. Mm. I'm in five lawsuits right now. What I do is I leave the stage here. We are shooting in some building by Central Park. He says, I am going to cross to the other side of Central Park where my car is waiting for me and the driver's going to take me home. Mm. And it dawned on me. It took me decades to realize the fame part mm-hmm. of the fame and fortune is for the birds. Yeah. The fame part is no good. The fame part is poison. It'll kill you. But it's the fame part that poisons us against the small role, the one scene part or whatever. You, you know, whatever you have to do in any project you do, is it, it is giving life to that project. Yeah. And... uh it's certainly it is the one time your little character has an advocate, mm. and you have to step up to the plate and give that little man or woman life. Mm. Oh, I love that. You know, I, I it's so true about the fame thing. I mean, it's something, of course, I've grappled with in a, a slightly different way. You know, watching my dad and 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 you know, kind of not kind of. <laughs> absolutely growing up in the shadow of it Ah. and and now that he's gone finding you know the shadows shifting and there's more light for me in the world and stuff like that but really like what grounds me and and coming back because we're gonna have to end in a few minutes here believe it or not people we're gonna have to have Stephen back so we can talk about 46 other things that I want to talk to him about but what calmed me down while I was driving here and trying to get rid of my panic attack in my chest was oh yeah no matter what Kelly, you you love to talk to people and have conversations on your show. You love writing essays and performing them. These are all things you know already that you know how to do well. And uh, you're going to do what you do with your book. And you're going to do what you do with this live show on stage. And it'll be some version of who you are. And it doesn't have to be that other version in your head that you think it's supposed to be. Because that's ultimately what we know is the work is the work. And you have to find your way through it no matter what. I I think, you know, when I was listening to you tell that story, two things popped into my mind. Uh, The first thing is the way you framed the story about going to the publisher, what happened if they don't want it? Mm -hmm. And I'm sitting here thinking, is there worse things than that? Mm -hmm. What happened if they want it? (laughs) 
but they want it different from the way you want it. Yeah. Then you are really torn with them saying, yes, Kelly, we're going to give you what you want. In fact, we're going to use that against you. But now we want you to tear out some of the most precious parts of yourself and say, no, we, we want you to sell that out down the river. There's worse things. Right, true. The thing I have found when I get that, the terror I have is that I am creating some sort of scenario in which I am judged, mm-hmm. whether it's an audition or not. In fact, one day, this is how pathetic it is. Well, not it is. I am. <laughs> I walked into a room. I walked into a room. I think it was over at Fox, and it was an empty room. There was no one in it, but there was a table there with three chairs on the other side, uh-huh. and my heart started pounding. <laughs> It was an empty room. It's amazing, isn't but, it? But it was just the Picasso visual yep. of the table with the people on the other side of the table mm-hmm. that made me panic. So I thought in my head, what is it that's so terrifying about an empty room? Is it the table or is it the three chairs on the other side of the table? Mm. So I thought, what happens if in an audition I move my chair to the other side of the table, too. Mm. And I don't sit on the opposite side from these people as someone to be judged by them, but I go to the side they're on as a collaborator. Mm -hmm. And I say, we have a great project we can work on here. Mm -hmm. And and it's it's a project I believe in, and I think when you look at it, you'll believe in it, too, because you're hiring them to be your publishers. Right. And you go on to the other side of the table because the one thing all artists have in common with the producers, the people who are hiring you, is the project. Mm-hmm. It is the one thing you hold in common. So if you move, if you remove yourself from the equation and say, my presence here, I'm talking about the project. Yeah, yeah. I'm in love with the project. Don't worry about me. Don't even look at this man with the frog in his throat. Right. <laughs> Instead, look at this project because this is what matters to me. It's my life, this project. Yeah. And if you do this, it will be your life too. And we will, we will join in the plane somewhere in between. And we will have some moment of light that's brought about by this little thing that never even existed that's called art. Yeah. And it exists right between us right now. And we have a moment to make it happen. Uh, that's my that's uh, my take. I love that. I love that. And and really, the, the, I decided the whole reason I'm I'm doing this show now is just to get free therapy. Oh God! <laughs> <laughs> Every week I have another guest. Last week was Marion Williamson. She came in and like you know got me off the edge of the despair about the human species and stuff like that. You know, so so actually, the, uh, thank you, Stephen. That was really actually very helpful because I did imagine us. Me and I, the two people that I know I'm going to meet sitting there looking at this thing that that is it's like, you know, this is the baby and let's let's grow it up and let's shape it and let's give it some legs so it can go out into the world because it could be a beautiful thing. Right. And, and so I love that. And we, you must come back in a few months so we can talk storytelling because we didn't even get to storytelling. We didn't today. get to storytelling. I know, and and so everyone, you need to go to um, Stephen's podcast. It's called the Tebolowski Files. How often do you do that? Uh, right now, we're doing it like once every two weeks, but we have about 45, yes. 46 There's episodes 46, already 46 done. 46 episodes. So go and subscribe. Check it out. And I have one other thing, too. One yes. other thing that's new. Because of the podcast, Kindle asked me to write a story for Kindle. Oh, fantastic. So I have a story on Kindle called Cautionary Tales for the for the price of a song, literally like $1.99. But but if if you I think you will really enjoy it. It's it's a story. You just go if you go to stephentobolowski dot com, it'll take you instantly to the Kindle thing. If you're interested in reading that, it is amusing. I promise you. It, it, trust me, he's a great writer. It, it is it is amusing, and uh, it also supports the Tobolowski files. It does, and uh, I have a Kindle, so I'm going to go home and download it. Yay! I'm so excited. <laughs> So thank you, Stephen, for being here. And you'll come back. We'll come back and we'll talk more. Trust me, we'll talk more. Uh, so I want to thank, uh, of course, all of you out there who are listening live and who are downloading either from the archive or iTunes. You guys rock my world. Thank you so much. If you have any feedback for me, please, uh, you can find me at WFADradio at gmail.com. I'd like to thank Barbara Roman and Johnny Dama, my husband Bob, and the Twitterverse and Facebook land and my friends and family and all the other things. And uh, next week we have Stephen Weber. Yes, that smart, cute, sassy actor and who, who I like to call Chief Shitster on Twitter. Because if you don't follow the Stephen Weber on Twitter, you are not being properly 
amused and at times horrified. He's a very amusing lad. Oh, my God. He's amazing. He's amazing. So we're going to uh, close the show with a new musical artist that I've just found on Twitter. His name is Ryan Kickland. You can find his mu- music at R-Y-A-N-K-I-C-K-L-A-N-D.com. This is a song called The Valley. It's He does amazing kind of haunting roots Americana stuff. Uh, I think you'll really love this, and we'll see you next week with Stephen Weber. Have a good one, everyone. Dissident Radio. Dissident Radio. On the internet. Listen before it's illegal.